take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and... Richard has already read the text for us. You know, uh, there are... This has been an intense week um, of suffering in our community, in our state, in our region. All of you know um, someone that was affected by, directly by, the storms that cut through our state, through our region. Wednesday. Wednesday is a day that will go down in history for us here in the state of Alabama. It will, will mark time. A hundred years from now, they will speak of that day. And we're often caught uh, in the crosshairs of what to do uh, from a pulpit on a day like today. There are churches all around this area. Some of them lost their buildings. They're meeting in the open air. Or they're borrowing someone else's building. And they're meeting, they're gathering to worship God. Their friends have lost everything. They've lost everything. They're still gathered to worship God Others are filling buildings that have been empty previous to this. Maybe 10 or 15 people showing up. Now there's 50 or 75 or 100 this morning. People are looking. People are searching. People are groping for answers. And, you know, I decided, um, I guess guess, uh, some are asking the question, How, as we uh, come together to put the pieces of life back together, as people turn from sin to trust in Christ in these days, what should our response be? How should we address the issue? You know, not just as pastor, but as Christian, as friend, as brother. I decided to focus on the passage that I planned to preach on prior to the storm. Uh, My intent was to preach our quarterly giving sermon Today And that, that's what I want to do. It will have a different flavor to it because of the events of this week. Um, but I decided not to preach on a text like the Good Samaritan. Um, that would have been an appropriate text. But you know, I'm looking at the faces of Good Samaritans this morning. You're preaching that message. With your chainsaws and your strong backs and your willing hands to make sandwiches and deliver food and water. So I I could have preached that, but I think you're doing it. And um, we'll continue to do it. I could have preached on 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 where Paul speaks of the great famine that went through the region where he lived and where so many Christians lived in the first church. And he called his people rightly to give out of their poverty keep your word give what you promised to give don't stop now because it's hard for you keep going i could have preached that text would have been fine there are countless psalms that could have been preached um it's funny you know all the trivial uh church signs have disappeared since wednesday all the trite little funny sayings are gone now there's emblazoned across these same signs Lots of psalms. 
The Lord is our refuge, a very present help in a day of trouble. Um, things that should be there all the time. Things that should be there all the time, they're there. These types of events cause us to do that. They cause us, they call us to do one of two things. They call us to turn anew to our God, or they cause us to turn completely away. And if you spend any time in the affected area, you'll hear both sides of that. You'll hear people who, in the rubble of their home, tears streaming down their face, holding your hand, will say, God's still God. I still love Him. I'm going to serve Him. And you'll hear others who will curse at the event, at the God of whoever. So this event will have a profound effect. And, uh, and I'm not trying to ignore it, but I think what we'll do here is, is focus where we were. You know, in the text in Matthew 6, 19 through 34, we're confronted with one of the great teachings of Jesus. Indirectly, it in, involves giving, possessions, laying up treasure in heaven. Directly, it involves providence. I... Um, for a definition of what is providence, you might say, we often use the term providence and sovereign interchangeable. But actually, providence is a little different. Listen to what the Westminster—I mean, what the London Baptist Confession of Faith, our church confession, what it says. Chapter 5, Article 1, God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence to the end, end for, the, for which they were created, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. There's not a better definition of what providence is than what I've just read to you. It's the biblical teaching that our God superintends and watches over even the path of an ant from the core of its ant hill to the top of the hill to gather food and back again. God superintends that. In our text, providence is all over the place, okay? But we see it. Don't you see it? In our text, if you look at his Jesus's words, teaching them in verses 25 through 33 about the birds that God gives food to without them sowing a seed, about the field, which is covered with an array of beautiful flowers that didn't just pop up and grow there by chance. God put them there and Solomon, in all of his glory, can't surpass the field. God oversees and superintends everything. And yes, absolutely, God superintends the path of killer tornadoes. They don't go by chance or by whim. They go by His hand. And Job was witness to one of these cyclones as he sat back on the mountain and watched as God cut the path of the storm. So God is providentially overseeing everything. 
children, Wednesday's events, and adults strike fear. And the forecasters tell us storms come again Tuesday. We don't know how big. Might be big, might be small. And children, I want to tell you the best counsel I can give you. The psalmist says, when you are afraid, trust in God. It doesn't get more technical than that. It's that simple. Children, when the storms come, the cyclone rages, things are being torn to pieces, even if it's right there at your doorstep, there's no better counsel than to trust God. Does that mean my house won't be blown away? No. Does that mean I won't die in the storm? Absolutely not. But if your trust is in Him, you have no greater hope. You have no greater hope. Do not, I think God would say, do not trust in basements. Do not trust in cellars. Do not trust in storm shelters. Though you probably need to go get in one. But while you're there, trust me. Trust me because you know you can be in those safe places doing the right thing and your house can collapse on you and kill you. Trust God. Do not trust anything besides Him. And that's really what our text is teaching us. That's what our text is saying to us. Worry is the respectable sin, as Jerry Bridges calls it, in chapter 8 of his book, Respectable Sins. Worry and anxiousness are his topic. Worry is respectable. No one would come in the doors of a church saying, I murdered a guy last week. I murdered somebody. Oh, really? When? Who was it? Oh, it was my guy down the neighbor down the street. I disagreed with him. He made me mad. I went and got a gun and killed him. Well, fine day. It's a beautiful day. Come on in. No one would dare come to church bragging about their adulterous affair. About swindling money. About coveting even. I mean, we're even a little nervous about outwardly calling it covetousness. Though that also is a respectable sin. I think there's no more respectable sin, no more overlooked sin in our church today and in my life than worry. Anxiousness. We almost wear it like a badge of honor. You know, we, we, we code it over with the word concern. I'm just concerned. I'm not worried. But then we rattle on for an hour about what we're just concerned about and what's not consuming us. Worry is a respectable sin. Christians know they're not supposed to do the bad things like murder, Adultery, lie, cheat, steal, but worry? I mean, it's just my, how many times have you heard this? It's just the way God made me. I agree. I agree. Some of you were born with a propensity towards the sin of anxiousness. It is still a sin. There are those who have a propensity to drink too much. If they drink too much, it's a sin. And there are those who are born towards all types of sexual immorality. 
even with propensities towards homosexuality, it does not excuse their action. So we can't excuse homosexuality, and neither should we excuse our own anxiousness. Because it's a sin. John Piper reminds us that Jesus speaks to his disciples over and over and over again about this issue, worry. (laughs) He tells them about worry a lot. He's concerned about their worry. Why is he so concerned about worry? Why should I be worried about worrying? Why should I be anxious? Because it's a moral deficiency in my heart. It's a sin in me. It can be traced to unbelief. Unbelief. We don't believe that God will provide for us, so we worry about it. That's what our text says. You don't think God can take care of your need of food and shelter and clothes, so you worry about it. We, we, we know that we're not supposed to do it, but we, and we try even hard not to, but we keep doing it. We worry because of not just unbelief, but because of our need to control everything in us and around us. We have to know every variable and plan for each one. The events of this week help us know you can't plan for these things. What, what, what are you going to do in life? You can't control it. It's around you. Someone greater than you must control it. And I think we've come face to face with that. Worry is caused by unbelief. It can be caused by, by a sense of need of control. It can also be caused by straight out, unmitigated worldliness. We're worldly. We're more of this world than we are of the coming world. So when we see this world shaking, blowing, and evaporating, we're undone. We're undone. It strikes us. Our desires are all wrong. We want to maintain a certain style of life. And when that life is threatened by an economic collapse, we worry. As we think about worry today, and as we think about the idea of laying up treasure in heaven, I want us to remember, you cannot fix this problem. You cannot fix this problem. There is no command of do-isms that will do away with worry. There's only one hope for you and for me, and that's where we want to go. We want to look there. Look at the text, the way it's laid out for us. Start in verse 19. Jesus directly on the Sermon on the Mount. He flows from a teaching of the prayer. How are we to pray? The disciples' prayer is given. He talks about fasting. And look what he says next. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Why? Well, because moth and rust destroy them. They're not eternal. Because thieves break in and steal them. Because tornadoes come and blow them away. I mean, that, that, that's the reasoning of Jesus. They are tangible, they are physical, and they will cease to exist in a moment. We all know the thrill of buying something we've longed for for a long time. And two months later, what happens? It just doesn't mean as much anymore. We spent all that time worried about getting what we wanted, and now we've got it and we don't want it anymore. 
It ends up with the Salvation Army. Somebody else's treasure. So, in the text, Jesus is saying, don't lay up your treasure there. He's not saying don't have treasure. He's not even saying don't have possessions. He's saying don't make that your treasure. What's his alternative? Jesus moves on to say, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven through giving of your money, your treasure, your time, your resources, your devotion, your relationship with Christ. Lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. It's the opposite. If you lay up treasure here, it will disappear. If you lay up treasure there, it can't be touched. I stood with a 71-year-old man in Webster's Chapel Thursday. He was visibly shaken. He was not crying. He was not injured. His home was gone. And as you shake his hand and look in his eyes, there's something to him. He's a, he's a man. You can tell. He said, I've lived here my whole life. And when we get this mess cleaned up, I'm going to build here again if the Lord's willing. As we talked, he said more than once, my hope, my trust, my life is not this house. It's not this property. My hope is God. My hope is somewhere else. My life is somewhere else. I mean, he just kept expressing in simple little terms the most profound trust in the providence of God. His world was shaken, but his faith, his life was not. Because his treasure wasn't his house. His treasure was in heaven. His treasure was in heaven. So when his treasure, Jesus Christ, comes again, his life will appear with him. And he will receive his reward. This is, this is the text. We're it's been exposited for us this week. Some of you have lived it. Some of you have touched it. Some of you have seen it. So he gives this great teaching about not laying up treasure on earth but in heaven. Though we can't have possessions on the earth, they're not to be our treasure. And then he, and then he goes into, he launches into this talk about a lamp and a body. A dark eye and a healthy eye. That's kind of confusing to me for a long time. Let's move past it for a moment. We'll come back to it. He then goes to a very simple statement. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and, and money. He's not saying you shouldn't try to serve God and money. He's not saying it's going to be hard to do it. He says it cannot be done. You cannot serve God and money. And we move to verse 25. Look at the word. The very first word in your text is therefore. Therefore. The whole argument of the paragraph 25 through 34 is built on 19 through 24. Therefore. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Listen, the first point, this is a two-point sermon with lots of sub-points. But the two main points, we, we have to wage war on anxiety. I don't care who you are. All of us at some point reach a point of worry. It might be a diagnosis from a doctor. 
It might be a tornado. It might be an economic collapse. It might be a family issue. It might be divorce. It might come in any form or fashion. But at some point, we all have a breaking point where we turn our eyes and start to worry. Get anxious. Move beyond concern, what's a legitimate concern, into sin. Okay? So, we have to wage war on it. It's not something we can just go through life and assume we don't have. It comes in two ways, two forms. Okay? It comes in two forms. The first side is the side that is panicked all the time. You know these people. Worry warts, we call them. Right? Worriers. People who just are dreaming up the wildest things you can ever imagine that are going to happen. And they're trying to prevent it. They don't have a few supplies on hand. You go into their basement and it's stacked like Walmart. Because the world might end tomorrow. And they're going to be prepared for it. Right? I mean, we've all met these people. Some of you are this person. You've got a contingent plan for everything in life, you think. You think. It's the anxious side. It's the worry side. It's, it's what we call worry. It's fretting and running about trying to be prepared. There's another side, though, so that no one is exempt in the room. It doesn't come out that way for you. Worry comes out in achievement for you. If I climb the ladder far enough, if I get ahead of far enough, if I'm able to maintain long enough, it won't matter what happens. I'll be bulletproof. Even if I take a tumble, I'll only fall back down to where everybody else is. And for you, worry comes out in accumulation. Storage. Stuff. Treasure. So nobody in this room is exempt from worry. At some point in our lives, we've all committed this sin. Some of you commit it even now. You're struggling now with it. And so we're all guilty. We all have to wage war on this sin. We can't sit passively by and think it affects that guy over there, but not me. Okay? And as God always does with His children, He will get around providentially to bringing it to your eyes so you can't mistake it for what it is. Somehow, He always does. He brings sin that is in the dark into the light because He loves you. Because He cares too much about you to let you go to hell. He wants you. He wants all of you. So some of you are in the vice being squeezed right now. The providential vice. It's tightening. And what's popping out is anxiety and worry and lack of trust in God. Not because He hates you, because He loves you. He loves you. If you look there at verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not, no stronger word for that, do not, do not ever, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? I think he strategically chooses these things 
food and clothing. Why? Because he knows, and water. Why? Because life is more than these things, but without these things, physical life ceases. You go without water for three days, you're in trouble. If you're not dead already, you're about to die. You go without food 40, 50 days, even a healthy person dies. Jesus is not waging war on food and water here. What's he doing? He's going to convince us in this text that our Father in heaven provides these things, and so we have no need to worry over them. He's going to convince us of that, and we're moving there. But first he wants to say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And his reasoning is very clear as we move through the passage. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus, what, what are you saying? Wage war. He's saying, disciples, wage war on worry, on anxiousness. How do I wage war on anxiousness, Jesus? Second point of the sermon. Second main point is seek Christ and His kingdom. I think He does it two ways. He says it plainly in verse 33. All those things you're worried about, the Gentiles worry about those things. Sinners worry about those things. I know you need those things. The Father knows you need those things. But seek first the kingdom of God and He'll give you these things. These things are an assumed fact. God will give them. And if for some reason you're cut off from these things, what will worry do to get it to you? It's his question. That's what he means when he says, how can worrying add even one span to your life? How can you add a second to your life if you worry about it? Worry doesn't accomplish anything. So even if you were to find yourself in a situation where you have no food, you have no water, you have no clothes, worrying doesn't, like a genie bottle, bring it to you. Worry is useless. It eats up what little mental reserve you have in that situation to actually... Be given those things or go get those things. So it's no good to worry about it. It doesn't accomplish anything. Anxiousness only leads to more problems. It doesn't solve anything. But I think he does it in a profound way by looking back up into his teaching. The reason he positions in verse 25 the therefore is because he wants you to look back to that paragraph I skipped. I skipped it intentionally. Look back at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eyes healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. That directly ties to, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about anything. How? Because the subject is the eye. The eye is a way of saying your life's focus. Whatever your eyes look at, that's what you're focused on. How do I wage war on anxiousness, Carlton? Focus your eye on something that's more significant than this transient world. Focus your eye on Jesus Christ. 
How do I wage war on worry? What's the practical thing to do? Look at Jesus and never turn away. And never focus on anything else. That's what he said. If you look away from Jesus, the light in you becomes darkness. And it is great darkness. I'm coaching T-ball. That's a fun event for me. Little kids, five and six. You put the ball on the tee, the ball's not moving. The ball is stationary. It's right there. You, you get their hands on the bat. You guys have seen it, haven't you? Some of you have coached it. And the ball's in there, and you've, t- you've told them over and over again, do what? Look at the ball. Yesterday we had our first game, and they're so juiced up. We don't even keep score. They're juiced up. <laughs> they're going to kill it. They've been watching Major League Baseball. They're going to hit a home run. Most of them can't hit it past the pitcher. And as they go to swing, they're looking at the ball. Well, they've, they've listened well to their coach. They're staring at the ball. I say, okay, hit it. And you laugh, and yet that's what you and I do. We hear Jesus say, look at me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. Hold on to me. Don't look at anything else. Don't trust in anything else. And we got it. And then Wednesday happens and we go. Then cancer happens. Then our child dies. We lose our job. He hadn't moved. He's not shaken. He hasn't disappeared. He didn't run and hide in a storm shelter. He's right there. You want to wage war on anxiousness and worry? It's all about your eyes. It's all about your focus. It's all about your trust. It's the most practical thing I can tell you for your whole life, for my whole life. And it's simple, isn't it? It's easy, isn't it, kids? Some of you play t-ball. Once you learn to keep your eyes on the ball and you swing and all of a sudden the ball goes out of the infield and everybody's cheering, then it's a matter of run to first base, right? That's the next step. <laughs> but it's that simple. It's just like t-ball. It's just hit the ball. It's right there for you. The focus is the problem. He wages war in this text on worry by placing our focus on the providence of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you turn your eyes away from the light that is me, he's already called himself the light prior to this. If you, if you turn your focus away from that, you will worry. You will be anxious. You will have no hope. Now, practically. Practically, we move forward. And, and see, this is why I don't bring manuscripts. You know, you're four or five pages into them. You haven't moved. Let me give you some applications from the text, some things that I think will help us understand better. First of all, Jesus in verse 25 talks to us about our priorities in life. This is the subtopic underneath the two main points. He, he addresses our priorities. Do not be anxious about your life. 
What you will eat, that's a priority. What you will drink, that's a priority. Nor about your body or the clothes you put on your body, that, that's important. Is not your life more than these things? Well, yes. It, it, it is more than these things, Jesus, what we come to realize. Now, in this culture, you would never imagine that. Because in the commercials we watch each day, we're told our life is in the things we have. That's our culture. But the Bible's the opposite. Your life is more than these things. You have these things. Your Father knows you need these things. But your life is more than these things. And His example to us is the birds of the air. His second argument in verses 26 through 28 is that God is providential. God is providential. He is watching over you in all things. He argues that the priority against worry is trust in providence. That, that's his argument. You've got to have priorities, right? Jesus is the priority. That's, that's what I've already talked to you about. And secondly, you have to trust his providence. You have to trust his providence. One thing that's helped me is a quote from John Newton. John Newton, who was a pastor who wrote Amazing Grace, said this about providence. One of the marks of Christian maturity which a believer should seek is an acquiescence in the Lord's will founded in a persuasion of His wisdom, God's holiness, His sovereignty, and His goodness. So far as we attain to this, a trust in the Lord's wisdom, holiness, sovereignty, and goodness, we are secure from disappointment. Our own limited views and short-sighted purposes and desires may be and will be often overruled. But then our main and leading desire that the will of the Lord may be done must be accomplished. How highly does it, be, does it become us, both as creatures and as sinners, to submit to the appointments of our mark, Maker? And how necessary is it to our peace? This great attainment is too often unthought of, overlooked. We are prone to fix our attention upon the second causes, the immediate instruments of events, forgetting that whatever befalls us is according to God's purpose. Therefore, it must be right and seasonable in itself and shall in the issue be productive for our good. From hence arise, if, if we lose our sight on the fact that God is providential, we will be impatient, we will be faced with resentment, we will have secret complainings, which are not only sinful, but are tormenting. They're tormenting. Whereas if all things are in His hand, if the very hairs of our head are numbered, if every event, great and small, is under the direction of God's providence and purpose, and if He has a wise, holy, and gracious end in view, to which everything that happens is subordinate and subservient, then we have nothing to do but with patience and humility follow as He leads and cheerfully to expect a happy outcome. How happy are they who can resign all to Him, see His hand in every dispensation, 
believe that He chooses better for them than they possibly could choose for themselves. I think John Newton understands Matthew chapter 6. He lived it. He lived it. He preached it. He died in that trust of providence. As, um, as the storms passed by, we took shelter. Our family even came here because we thought the path might come in our neighborhood. I'm not telling you to be foolish. But while we sat here with our children, we sang the hymns of the faith. Even he has the whole world in his hands. Even to say, we added a verse, he has the tornado in his hands. Why? Because we want our kids to know if it hits the church and we die, it was in his hand. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't chance. It wasn't circumstance. It was the plan of God. And it's perfect. It's always perfect. So his second argument is trust providence. His third argument against worry, waging war, after focusing on Christ, after focusing on providence, he argues from common sense, which I've already mentioned. It's unproductive. What good does it do you? Verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? It's unproductive. Then, he says, in verse 32, we're to remind ourselves when we give in to worry, we're giving in to sinful habits. Look at verse 32. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's saying... When you worry about your life, about your things, about a storm, about anything in life, when you give in to it and it consumes you and it becomes your only thought, you're a Gentile. You're being a Gentile. You're being a sinner. You're being a pagan. You're acting as if there is no God and everything's up to women's circumstance. He reminds us in our war against against. Waging war practically. How do we wage war practically? Focus on Christ, number one and foremost. Trust His providence. Think that worry does us no good. And when we worry, we're like the sinners around us. No different. No different than them. We're just like them. And finally, he says, if you're going to wage war in this text, if you're going to wage war, <clears throat> you, need to, you need to trust that God is your Father. Not just some vague power force in the, in the super universal system was in control of your life, but your father is in control of it. After all these things, verse 32, the Gentiles worry, they run after all these things, but you're not force, not supernatural being, your father knows you have need of these things. Now, it, listen, if you want to wage war practically, you've got to focus on Christ. He is providential. It doesn't do me any good to worry. All these other things are true, and they're right. But the first and the last are the greatest, I believe, in the war against worry. Are my eyes focused, unmoved on Christ? 
And if so, do I not understand that his father is my father? And if I understand that I truly believe those things, what will my father not give me or do for me? That what, what would he ever do that would harm me? Ultimately harm me. So everything he does ultimately helps me. Seek the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added. So, I think with you about those in our state who, there were those who trusted Wednesday in their father. And they were blown away. Some of them in our community, right here. Literally, they were blown into the trees. So what you're telling us doesn't work. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because this is looking at things not physically, but spiritually. Because when they hit the tree and they died, they lived. Versus those who hit the tree and died and then they truly died. You say, preacher, my my, my mind's overwhelmed with the fact that I'm facing death. I know. Mine would be too. The only hope, the only hope is that my eyes are focused not on death, but on Christ. And I know my Father. And He is good in all of His ways. This is not some trinket rosary that we pray and then God makes everything better. This is what sustains. This is the firm ground that sustains when nothing gets better. Everything goes from worse to bad to worse. And we still stand. And so because our treasure is not here, I I just end with this practical suggestion call that because our treasure is not here we hold everything with open hands and whoever has need we meet needs we give it away even foolishly give things away what the world would call foolish give it away That's a great display of where your trust is. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a close, we look at this mighty text, and we come face to face with our Savior. We are humbled that you would have mind of us. Before we ever drew a breath, ever had a thought, 
ever did right or wrong. 